I'm Nareet Ben. This is a special episode of Life Deconstructed as we pull together some of our favorite anecdotes and insights from the incredible women on the show. From an ex-CIA operative to tech CEOs, fashion founders, and award-winning journalists and producers. They each had their own unique, winding, often unpredictable path to get to where they are. But no matter how different, you can find common threads in all of their experiences. Here are 12 inspiring women on imposter syndrome and taking up space. Alana Karen started working at Google back when, if you can imagine, no one had ever heard of that word. She's an award-winning leader and speaker who spent 20 years in tech, today as a director at Google. Her book is called Adventures of Women in Tech, How We Got Here and Why We Stay. This is what she told us about learning to stand up for herself and actually take credit for her accomplishments. I knew I was like pretty smart. I was the knowledge expert and I would stand up for what I thought was right. But it took me much longer to realize that I should be asking for what I wanted in my career, that if I saw some interesting role, I should ask about it and express interest in it. I often just waited and wondered why nobody was tapping my shoulder. It took me a long time to realize that other people were asking for things and I wasn't or other people were expressing interest in this other version of standing up for yourself that I just had never realized. It seemed unknowable why this was happening and sort of magical. And it ended up, I think, being longer than it should have for me to say, oh, I'd like a change. Oh, I'd like an extra thing of responsibility. Oh, did you know I could do that? There's a lot of connected skills that require us to speak up and be able to say what we did well and what we need. And at the same time, there are studies too that women are penalized more for doing this sometimes, depending on how they do it, obviously. But often it can be appear as bragging or out for themselves. And this is sort of a society context of what women are expected to be. In my first 10 years at Google, the team that I managed at the time would talk about wanting more recognition. Like, I didn't get it. Mm. Like, first of all, we were on a team that it was a really hard job. It's policy. Frankly, it's better if people don't hear or see us. If they see us, something went terribly wrong. (laughs) But we were often thanked on launch announcements. We were often credited at all hands for things. And so I kind of didn't get it. And it took me a while to realize that it was actually kind of reflecting me, like what I was talking about and what I was saying. And was I proactively sharing news about my team with others and in turn about myself? And that was sort of an interesting connection that I made. And I made kind of late, frankly, for that team. I did it much better on my next team. So I think partially it was a little late and I was already a pretty senior person when I got it. But I think the benefit of that was that I was already pretty senior when I started to do more of it. And so it was often that I wasn't speaking for myself. I was speaking for a team. And this is one of the ways that women have tended to manipulate this perception of ourselves. It's when we are speaking to something broader, when we are saying, I'm not just doing it for myself, but I'm doing it for others, or this is to credit my whole team, the whole effort. We often navigate the downsides of, you know, appearing to brag or whatever very well, because people still connect it with what they expect. Mary Beth Long's work experience is a little bit different than most of ours. It involved hostage training and living undercover in some of the more dangerous corners of the world. 
She spent 13 years in the CIA as an operations officer, then moved on to the Defense Department, where she became the first woman confirmed by the Senate to serve as Assistant Secretary of Defense. She explained what she learned by being surrounded by men all the time and making sure her voice was heard. In a male's environment, though, I did find myself being a little more forceful than probably I naturally would have been, a little more aggressive, assertive. Mm -hmm. One thing, though, that I adopted very early on, I think it's gender neutral, was that I always was the smartest person in a room, at least as far as preparation. I never walked into a room where I didn't feel that I was prepared on the subject matter or that I knew what the boss wanted to talk about or I knew what the inquiry was and I was ready for it. Secondly, I never missed an opportunity to volunteer for something, no matter what it was really, whether it seemed like a trivial thing or it seemed like an exciting opportunity that I wasn't quite sure I was ready for. I think being with guys taught me to stretch myself a little bit more, and that ended up serving me very well. Long after leaving the CIA, Mary Beth entered one of the top jobs in the Defense Department. There, she found a new version of that same old challenge. I do think that women are criticized for their high expectations and holding people accountable much more than guys. I mean, every woman I know tries the balance about being sharp elbowed or being a witch and being too empathetic and nurturing. I'm not nurturing. I don't know many guys who are. In DOD one day, the Secretary of Defense had two women in his room, myself and another. And he said, you know, both of you are the only senior officers that I've received complaints about. I mean, I've prided myself on never having anyone complain about me. And he said, you both have sharp elbows, meaning that we're demanding and that it's either contribute or get out of the way. What do you do though, Mary Beth, when you hear something like that? Because when you have so many years of experience at that point around men where you see that there is a certain kind of behavior that actually gets you in the door, that gets you heard, that gets your opinions heard, and that it's worth hearing your opinions. And then your boss says, well, you know, maybe you should soften those elbows. What's your reaction? The first immediate reaction was to be defensive, frankly. The other complaint was that we swore that we used the vernacular, which is every American uses the vernacular. So my first reaction was to be defensive. Generally, I stand my ground, but I do try to take it and be more sensitive about the people to whom I happen to be dealing. I don't deal with bureaucracies well, and I tend to be quite impatient. And there is a place where I can improve myself. Miri Eisen came out of a similar world as Mary Beth Long, but on the other side of the world in Israel. She spent 20 years in the military, serving as deputy head of the Combat Intelligence Corps and retiring as a full colonel. In every single role along the way, she was the only woman in the room and the first woman to do her job. She reflected on what that was like and what she learned. Pretty much from the age of 20 when I became an officer until I finished as a full colonel when I was already 40-something, all the years in the military and all the positions that I was in, there were other women around, but we were so few that you'd like meet up here and there. All the positions I did... They didn't have other women at the brigade level. They had them as, as, you know, clerks, as low level, but not in the professional aspects that I was in. Let's put it this way, when it was a conversation, let alone when it was decision and policymaking, I was the only woman's voice that was going to be heard as a woman. It's a lot of responsibility, very, too. It is. You're very aware of the fact that you're the first woman. Well, I was very aware of that because every single position I did in the military, I was the first time that a woman had done that position. And so it becomes this kind of onus on your back 
fact that you're not just doing it because you're interested and because you're good at it, but everybody's looking at it as, oh, let's see if a woman can do it. I'd walk in and the language changed. I can give different examples to all sides of it. The men who were like, oh, we can't talk the way we're used to talking. And not because men inside a room automatically talk, you know, disgustingly dirty or anything like that. It's just they do talk differently. Um, the other aspect of it was out of an aspect of respect. I mean, here I am, and in one of the positions, I was pregnant with the eldest child, he who is now 21, and my commanding officer at the time stopped smoking because I was pregnant. Wow. Because I was in these rooms, and this is before it was when smoking was still legal and whatever, you know, this is a long time ago. And he said, well, I'm going to stop smoking because she's pregnant, and that's bad for her, which meant that all of the officers in the room had to stop smoking inside that room. So we've heard from several founders on the podcast, and Tina Sharkey is one of the most accomplished, a seasoned entrepreneur, investor, speaker, board member, and mentor. She spent over two decades building brands, businesses, and platforms, and has given a lot of thought to what drove her and actually helped her succeed. Her take on taking up space is all about the skill of confidence. Being confident, I think that's one of my great skills is I'm never afraid to be a student. I ask a lot of questions and that's because I show up as a card holding member of the team. And that means that I can play multiple positions, but I also really want to learn from that team. And I really want to hear what they have to say. And then I want to share what I have to say and mold the clay together and drop my ideas out there, not as directive, but as potentially provocative to have them think differently about the problems they're trying to solve or the things they're trying to create and trying to almost give them belief in themselves. Belief in you starts with you. And so if you don't believe in you, like nobody else is going to believe in you. So I think that is a universality of getting people to give themselves permission to do, be, say, go, reach for anything they want. And you're not going to get it all the time. But if you don't believe it, why would somebody else believe in you? That's not somebody else's job. That's your job. Around a decade ago, Stephanie Mark, along with two good friends, started a passion project as a way to peek into the lives of the fashion set and global tastemakers. Coveture was a massive overnight success and grew into the wide-ranging, award-winning brand it is today. She recalled the day they went live. It's almost like a real OG influencer marketing where we were like, hey, influential people, we're going to cover you in X, Y, and Z way. But we were like shocked. I truly thought no one except my parents would go to the site. I mean, even still now, I'm like, I can't really believe that that happened. People were just getting used to the fact that the stylists themselves could be the celebrity just as much as a celebrity client they were styling. Or the editor at the magazine could be as publicly recognized as the editor-in-chief. And Facebook had already launched. Instagram would launch really shortly after Twitter was already launched. So it was this era of people becoming comfortable in opening themselves up. Years later, after global success and even selling the company, Stephanie told us she has even worse imposter syndrome than before, but now she knows how to take it in stride. So I have more moments now than I did at the beginning. I think at the beginning we were like, this is crazy. 
crazy. And we were like doing it as we went. And also it's like adrenaline and you're moving forward. And I think as a company grew and as there were more financial expectations and also we had more employees who were relying on us, that is when for me, I started to have like self-doubt and thinking like, can I do this? Was it all a fluke? What's going on? And I think just from being honest about those feelings with other people, it is more common than you think. Oh, for sure. And I do really, you know, believe that media also really perpetuates this because I think you see these big stories and companies of one person who started and scaled it and a company can only be successful if you have a billion dollars of revenue and you take over the world. And I think when you are constantly surrounded by those messages, it makes you doubt your own accomplishments. Today, Alexandra Waldman is a heavy hitter in the fashion industry, co-founding the groundbreaking Universal Standard, beautiful quality clothes ranging from size double zero all the way to 40. They've been named one of Fast Company's most innovative companies and raised investment from big names like Gwyneth Paltrow and Netta Porter founder Natalie Massonet. But she and her partner didn't just have imposter syndrome. They literally had no idea what they were doing and faked it till they made it. Just to give you an idea of how at zero we were when we started this company, neither of us had any experience with manufacturing clothing or anything like it. We would go to big department stores and we would look at the brands that we admire and we would look at the made in label to see where they make their stuff. And we found out that the cottons that we most admired seemed to come from Peru. So we called the Peru Chamber of Commerce and Paulina said, hi, we're a young company. We're trying to see the tea, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, well, good luck to you and see you in a few years when you have something, you know, like a value to tell us. So we waited a couple of weeks and Paulina called back and she said, hi, we're an American manufacturer of clothing and um, it's getting a little too expensive to manufacture in the United States. And we're thinking of switching our cotton production to Peru. And they flew us to Peru. They introduced us to a whole bunch of factories that we still work with to this day. But it was hilarious because when we got there, the jig was up. I mean, it was ridiculous. We did not know anything. We're meeting with these heads of factories who think that we're these American manufacturers. They're saying things like, you know, what are your grading rules? And Paulina is desperately looking up the word grading on her Google. (laughs) And so we finally had to just come clean. And we're sitting across these very kind of uh, distinguished men who have been doing this for their entire careers. And we're like, what is this grading thing you're talking about? And they just kind of looked at us, but there we were. And they took a risk on us and, and it worked. I think our lack of knowledge was at least as important as our fearlessness or our feigned fearlessness because it allowed us to bypass all of the things that we actually hated about the way the manufacturing and the, and the apparel industry in general worked. Everyone was saying, why don't you just go like buy a bunch of lame Brian stuff? And just like, I mean, these guys have been doing this for years. If they don't know how to do it, nobody knows how to do it. And I just kept thinking, you know, I'm doing this because I want to be the opposite of Lane Bryant. Why would I want to go into this? And God bless Lane Bryant again, because if it weren't for them, we'd probably be walking around naked, you know, (laughs) but there had to be a change in the entire industry. And we knew that we'd have to really break things before we could make things. 
On the podcast, we've also heard from some incredible award-winning journalists. One of them is Sarah Just, executive producer of PBS NewsHour. In 2014, after 25 years at ABC News, she was brought in to run the storied newscast and revitalize the show. On the subject of learning to use her voice and take up space, she told us what she learned early on in her career from the late, great Cokie Roberts. I walked into a meeting and, and Cokie and I were the only people in that room. We started talking. She was a great cook. And so we started talking about a recipe. And then the men started walking in the room and I kind of instinctively like shut down the conversation. Like, okay, we don't have to talk about that now. And she kept going. Also, she did a lot of sewing work and she would take that out and do it in our lab, even while we're in a meeting talking about, you know, a presidential election or something like that. And I just said, you know, you're comfortable having those conversations in front of men and doing the needlework? And she said, oh, sure. Makes them uncomfortable. That's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Throws them off their game. Throws I them love off, that. Right. She's like, we're women. Why should we be uncomfortable being women in a room, even though they're all men? If you've watched PBS NewsHour or really any number of network news shows, you know Jane Ferguson. For over 12 years, she's lived in the Middle East reporting for CNN, Al Jazeera, and now PBS from some of the most dangerous conflict zones in the world. Yemen, Somalia, Syria, and Afghanistan, where she was on the ground again in August amid the chaos of the U.S. withdrawal. She told me why being underestimated can actually be a great thing. I've often said my greatest asset in many situations is being underestimated. I find that sometimes men in positions of power, they see you as less of a threat. And that can be an asset. In many places, it is. A lot of cultures I work in are so chivalrous that like I've seen men who at like the entrance to military bases in Yemen who don't dare close a door on me because, you know, so I've, I've literally like walked through places I'm not supposed to because they don't want to say no to this lady. I think that female journalists get watched less closely sometimes by the more sort of hostile government regimes. And when it comes to coming through airports, I've been underestimated before. On my way into like rebel-held Syria, flying into Beirut airport, I mean, I've persuaded customs officials that my camera and flak jacket are for birdwatching. Despite years of bravely facing militias and terror groups like the Taliban, often alone, Jane told us how the world of network news still brings out her insecurities. The honest answer is that it's a pretty horrible world. (laughs) When I say a horrible world, I really do mean network news. Like, I'm very lucky I get to live in this PBS bubble where so many of the pressures that the network world uh, has, I'm exempt from. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. I think that it's incredibly hard. We're trying to do a job. And if you're old school like me and you're a reporter and a journalist at heart, it's very hard to try to coexist with this very Hollywood world. And much of network news wouldn't like to admit this, but it is. It's casting calls. It's talent agents. It's a look. I have been told I have the wrong accent. I have been told I'm too young. It's such a distraction from your actual job. You're out in the field your whole career. You think that you're going to be judged on your skills and the stories that you told. But unfortunately, as an industry, it's much, much more complex than that. And it's much less fair. I have built the kind of confidence from my experiences in the world that has helped me. But I still feel vast amounts of insecurity about all sorts of things. You know, the higher I rise in broadcasting, I look around and the less I see people from the kind of backgrounds I came from. I see you know, a lot of Ivy League, a lot of of people from extreme wealth. Like I don't see people from backgrounds like me. And that makes me insecure. It doesn't matter how many DuPonts or Emmys, like you'll still feel a sense of insecurity. 
On that note, Emmy Award-winning journalist and filmmaker Yael Avi has covered some of the biggest events of our lifetimes, from 9-11 on the ground in New York City to Hurricane Katrina and the Arab Spring. I asked her what it was like starting out at ABC News a couple decades ago, and the key point, how she sees it now, with some hindsight. I think it's work ethic and ambition, you know, that word that is so awful to say as a woman. I think every person out there who is not walking around with an imposter syndrome is not normal. But I'm going to say something so horrifically condescending as a mother. I've learned it only after having children and watching my children as little beings in situation and realizing that we carry that through life. And it's the beauty of it also. I hate it seriously when we need to be ashamed. And I think it's getting less and less for being ambitious, for, you know, knowing how to operate in an environment, knowing how to invest time. It's not just because we work hard. That means that you're talented if you're advanced. And talent is something that we assist. It's not, you know, a miraculous thing that shines upon me with the light of God. And we only have these conversations as women. I don't think men are having these conversations. And I think, you know, we've been conditioned as women the woman behind him, you know, and that's how he sometimes walk through life. And yes, you need to be heard. But I do think it's getting better. Patricia Sexton got her journalism chops when she quit her high-powered, high-paying job on Wall Street to go be an anchor in Mongolia. When she flipped her life upside down, she already had a decade of experience in banking where she was thrown into the water with the sharks. I never really felt quite smart enough to be there. And that probably fueled some of my decisions in hindsight. I really threw myself into sort of a niche market, if you will. I think at the time where I was questioning this, I had been sent off to Tokyo. And so I took the opportunity to learn about Japanese politics and the Japanese banking industry. And so I was able to deliver something that a Westerner who was speaking to Western hedge funds typically didn't have that experience. You know, you just have to figure out what your niche is. And I went to Singapore first. The Asian financial crisis hit in 1998. And I was a brand new banker with so little knowledge of the rest of the world. It was incredible that I, they needed someone to go. There was no more headcounts. So they weren't allowed to hire anyone. And they sent me to Singapore to trade with a couple of senior traders. And it was incredibly stressful. It was a baptism by fire. I didn't even have time to think about whether or not I could handle it. I just had to get up every day. And the markets were moving in ways that are historically almost impossible. People were losing millions of dollars overnight. It was very, very difficult. But also, it was quite exciting. And this is what would fuel my career later on. Brooke Goldstein is a powerhouse attorney, an award-winning filmmaker and founder. For her, public speaking and debating are a huge part of the job, whether it's on cable news or facing another lawyer. Neither came naturally. She gave us tips for working through that kind of imposter syndrome and building skills. Practice, practice, practice. There's no way, I think, to be a good public speaker without speaking publicly many, many times and getting to know who you are as a speaker, what your tone is, what your voice is, what audience reacts to you, you know, what subjects you're better at. You have to practice. I think that I have been for the majority of my career, a most terrible public speaker until probably just recently when I've finally become comfortable enough that I know my subject. I know I'm an expert in my subject and, you know, I have a lot of knowledge and experience about my field that I want to share with people. 
I will write out my whole speech, okay? And then I will rewrite it. First, I'll type it on my computer and then I will write it by hand and I will write it five, six, or seven times. But every time I write it, it gets distilled. So whereas I typed every word, then I write, you know, just a couple words per sentence. And then the next reiteration is one word per sentence. And then the next reiteration becomes the ultimate one where I have a two-hour speech, which is really... 25 bullet points of one word. So I've memorized the speech in a sense, and I know what I'm talking about, but I'm not reading it from the page. And then ultimately when I'm speaking, I always have a pen and I never stick to the script. So while I'm speaking, other ideas will come to you. So I will go on that tangent and I will speak. After I've finished that thought, I will come back to the bullet point and stay on track and move through the speech that way. But I will always inevitably go off script. At just 26, Amanda Gunawan co-founded the architecture and design firm OWIU. She and her partner believed in what they were doing, but convincing other people they belonged in the room was a whole other story. She explained how they convinced themselves and potential clients they were in the right place. I think it's really just about knowing who we are, knowing what we represent, and just trying to prove that. And I know it sounds very cliche, but that really is what it is. And If you like so strongly believe in something, it comes out like it shows. So as you're talking to people, you're trying so hard just to like persuade them on something that you absolutely believe in. It's not like you're like a used car salesman trying to sell something. You speak with conviction, you speak with so much intention, and eventually like you're lucky enough to meet people who would believe you. And that's your first project. And then your second project. And then as more and more people start to see this experience and this track record, your work will prove itself. That's just a little taste of the wisdom shared by all these different women. Most of it learned through trial and error and so-called mistakes on their way to finding the right path for them. Subscribe or follow us if you're on Apple Podcasts to hear more of their stories and unfiltered insight. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Talia Golihov. I'm Narit Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed.